Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. And uh, this morning I want to invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 90. This has become in the last year, the pandemic year, honestly one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. It has, I think this Psalm alone could have helped me keep my sanity during the pandemic year. And while you're finding Psalm 90, I just want to say again, thank you for letting me have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. I'll try to be a good steward of your time and attention and pray that God will speak to us through this passage. How many of you can say, Carrie, my life has turned out exactly how I imagined it when I was 18? Wave at me. Not a single hand. An 18-year-old is sitting in the room going, that's laughter. Maybe an 18-year-old is sitting in the room going, that's not good news. Why do those people just laugh? The fact of the matter is, Our stories never unfold the way we think they're going to. And we spend so much energy and time trying to write our own stories. We spend so much imagination, we put so much trust into the narrative that we're trying to construct, and it doesn't take life very long to really show us it's an imagination. It's a wish, it's a hope, it's a dream, and in some sense there's a good and a bad side to it. God gave our hearts the capacity to dream, the capacity to desire and long for these things. So in their purest form, they're not, they're not sinful. The problem is that we just enlarge them, we deify them, we idolize our plans and our, our ability to write our own script for our lives. It becomes bigger than it should be, and it really begins to usurp the plan of God. Just think about the last 18 months. Who would have imagined that we would face a global pandemic? I I imagine by now everybody in this room knows somebody who passed away or knows somebody who lost somebody in the pandemic. I have some dear friends of mine that two weeks ago, uh, a young man that used to be in my youth group many years ago in, um, in L.A. County, He pastored a small church in Central Florida. Um, His family had relocated to Central Florida. His dad, uh, mom, sister, brother, older sister, and brother-in-law. And in the span of about 10 days, this young man, 42, Paul is his name, pastored a small church. He lost his life to COVID, so church grieving at that loss. And his dad, two days later, passed away from COVID. And his brother-in-law, a week prior, passed away from COVID. Just one family in Central Florida that lost three family members within a span of of about 10 days. I mean, we've just seen devastation upon devastation. Partner that with social and civil unrest. Partner that with the most chaotic and confusing political season any of us have ever seen in our lifetime. Uh, Partner that with natural disasters. Just last week, or two weeks ago, we were praying that God would spare our coastline in Connecticut from uh, a hurricane. And now, you know, partner that with global unrest, the the Gulf Coast. Uh, You know, partner that with global unrest. And surely you could say, we live in perilous times. But are we surprised? That's what I want. That's That's the question I want to put before you. And if we're surprised, why are we surprised? Because the Jesus that saved me that I know and walk with said a long time ago, in the world you shall have, help me out, tribulation, but, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. See, Jesus said a long time ago, yeah, the world is broken and it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more perilous as time goes by. You're going to have tribulation, expect it, but don't imagine that that's going to crush or rob or steal or devour your joy, because you can be of good cheer in spite of what's going on around you. You can be of good cheer when you belong to a Savior who has overcome the world. 
What Jesus was saying is he's writing a much bigger story than we really understand. And I want to talk to you today uh, along the lines of letting God write the story, the only story really worth living. You see, we all have experienced in the last 18 months, very personally, um, probably even, even managing some despair and discouragement and depression along the way, um, we've all experienced the collapse of our plans. We've all experienced the shaking of what we thought was solid ground. And I'm not just talking about earthquakes. I'm talking about the solid ground of our health, the solid ground of our government, the solid ground of lots of things that we just took for granted for decades in, in our lifetime that all of a sudden with a pandemic suddenly came into question. Everything came into question. We, be, we began to see afresh and anew that everything that's material, everything that's physical, everything that's visible is also temporal and fragile and losable and breakable. And so when the conflict of the story we are writing, the conflict enters into our lives of, wait a minute, this story is, I don't have control. There's, there's shaky ground here. This is fragile. This is losable. This is breakable. Things can change on a dime. I live in about 10 minutes from Hartford, Connecticut, which is the capital of Connecticut. Connecticut is a very small state. And I remember when I lived on the West Coast, I almost forgot it was a state. I thought it was kind of a county of New York, which is kind of like what it is. But Hartford is the insurance capital of the world. And so everybody around Hartford is all about, just like Orange County, accumulating, accumulating the American dream, the home, the car, the jobs, the income, the security, the, the pleasure, uh, the prosperity, the material prosperity. And then once we get it, we strive and strive and strive to get it, and once we get it, it doesn't fulfill us, it just scares us, because we can lose it now. We work hard to get it, and then we work hard to keep it. And that's why Hartford is the insurance capital of the world, because there's not only insurance companies, there's reinsurance companies. My son worked for a reinsurance company. I said, Larry, what's a reinsurance company? He said, we are an insurance company that insures insurance companies. I'm like, come again? I mean, this is like one of those movies that goes five layers deep into a dream. There's insurance companies that insure insurance companies? Who would have thought that an insurance company isn't even secure? So, hey, we live in a shaking temporary world with temporary stories, and we're trying so hard to write those stories and construct those stories and secure those stories, but we just can't. What I want to put before you today is that there is a way to release the story you are trying to write. And as you're trying to write it, it's, if, if, it's, if it's working, then you're fearful of losing it or breaking it. You're trying to dodge all the bullets. You're trying to avoid all the, all the roadblocks and all the, the speed bumps and pitfalls. And, and, if, and if it's not working, then you're just filled with perpetual anxiety and frustration and even disappointment with God. Why isn't this working out? But the fact is there is a way to release the story that you, were tr you are trying to write with all of its fragility, all of its unpredictability, and actually just flourish in the story that God is writing. To flourish in the story, okay? Not a story you are making up, but the story of time and space that you were born in for you. It's God's story. Okay, And he's been writing it long before you and I came along, and it has a beginning and an end, and it's a cosmic story, and it's a wonderful story, it's a beautiful story, and here's the wonderful thing. Because I'm trying to write my own story, I miss the fact that I've been written into his. So I miss the true story. I'm trying to create a, a false one construct a contrived story in a narrative that, that I want to live out, and all the while what I'm doing, I'm kind of saying, here's what we tend to do, God, here's my story, and I'm praying hard and living right so that you'll make my story come true. And we kind of turn God into a concierge or a genie that's working out our hopes and dreams, and then when our hopes and dreams don't work out, we feel like God's failed us. But it's not the true God or true Jesus that failed us, it's just our caricature of Him that failed us. 
And what God wants us to do is release ourselves and release the narratives we're trying to write and the scripts we're trying to write, release ourselves into the story that he's already written and that he's writing us or has written us into. It's not the small story you imagined. It's the story and it's bigger and harder and better and far more significant than we can ever imagine. So, what does Psalm 90 have to do with all this? Well, I want you to, I want to lift off three principles from Psalm 90. Um, we're going to go through the whole Psalm, but before I read it, I need to tell you the backstory to this Psalm, okay? And I hope that what I'll do today will provoke you to really more thoroughly investigate and meditate on and live in this Psalm, because it's much richer than I can unfold uh, in, our, in the few moments we have remaining. If you'll notice the title of the Psalm in your Bible, Psalm 90, it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So this is a psalm, this is an ancient Hebrew poem turned into a song that was written by Moses, which means this is the oldest psalm. And to, on, to our understanding, it's the only psalm that Moses wrote. But this means that this is probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest pieces of Scripture ever written. So Moses, let's, let's go back into ancient Israel's history, and let's go all the way back and, and consider the story of Moses for a moment, because that brings to bear everything Moses is going to say in this psalm. Moses, as you know, was born as a Hebrew child uh, to Hebrew slaves that knew nothing but slavery in Egypt. This is a generation of Hebrews now that have been enslaved in Egypt. And he's born in a time when Pharaoh has decreed there's too many Hebrews, start killing all the male children. And so as Moses is born, his mother hides him as long as she can, and uh, finally he's too loud-mouthed crying. She can't hide him any longer, so she makes a little ark of papyrus reeds, and she puts them into a river, which was where they were, throw, they were supposed to throw their babies into the river to kill them. That was the decree from Pharaoh. Well, uh, Moses' mom was pretty clever. She figured out how to throw him into the river without killing him. She put him into a basket, and she chose this artful place where it would, that little basket would coast down river to right where Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage of servants were bathing and, and, and at the right time of day. And she was just hoping against hope that maybe Pharaoh's daughter would see this beautiful baby boy and not have the heart to kill him. And sure enough, you know the story, that's what happened. So Moses as an infant now is adopted into the palace of the most powerful global leader up to this point that the world had known, and he grows up as a Hebrew prince. Talk about a confusing identity. Am I Hebrew or am I Egyptian? Am I a slave or am I a prince? He grows up in the household with all the pleasures and all the education and all the material prosperity and power that the household of Pharaoh would have enjoyed. And it isn't long, well, you know, around 40 years, but somewhere around his 40th birthday, he begins to feel the oppression of his Hebrew brothers. You know the story. He acts out in his own. He tries to write his own story, take things into his own hands like we all do. He ends up killing an Egyptian. There's witnesses, and now he has to run for his life. And so on a dime, the story that Moses never had control of, okay, Moses is like a leaf on a river. He's just floating on the surface of a of a stream that's taking him wherever the story of God is going to take him. He never does have control of the story. Well, now he's a fugitive from justice, and he runs out into the wilderness, and he begins a new life there as a shepherd in a totally unknown uh, area and space. He ends up getting married. He ends up having a family. Forty years go by, and it's during that 40 years that he meets God, and you know the story of the burning bush, and God says, you're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to be a leader, and he argues with God, and no, God, not me. I can't talk. I can't do this. I can't. I can't. And anybody that's ever been approached by God with a call, we've all felt that God's story was bigger than us, and God's call we were insufficient to. And so Moses argues with God, and God says, no, you're going to go. You're going to be the deliverer that I've called you and designed you to be. And and you know the story, Moses goes back to Egypt, confronts Pharaoh, let my people go, the plagues unfold. Moses is this unlikely intermediary, pretty soon by providential sweeping circumstances over which Moses had no control. It's not long before this 
Hebrew that should have died in a river, that grew up as a prince, that was now a murderer and fugitive of justice, that built a new life as a shepherd in the desert, that now is confronting Pharaoh. It's not long before he is the unlikely leader walking out of Egypt with a million Hebrew people following him. They've never been a nation. It's been a long time since they've been anything but slaves. They borrowed a bunch of jewelry and money and all kinds of stuff from the Hebrews, uh, from the Egyptians they've spoiled, and they're heading out through the wilderness. And what do you know, the Red Sea, the parting, the miracle, they get out into the wilderness, and God begins to form them not only as a fa family of slaves, but as a new nation, as His people, and begins to teach them. And they're, in, they're on a journey to this promised land. And you know the story, they get to the promised land, the borders of the promised land, and they send in the spies, and, and, and two, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, let's go, God's got this. And ten come back and say, no way, we can't do this. And the people listen to the ten, and the people rebel and defy against the plan of God, and they choose not to go into the promised land, and God curses that generation and says, you're all going to die in the wilderness. Forty years are going to go by, and you're going to die here, and the next generation is going to grow up, and I'm going to bring them back to this place, and they're going to go into the promised land. So can you imagine Moses? On this journey, how frustrated would he have been that the story, his story, he's going in, he's finally going to go into the promised land, finally freedom, finally he's going to be able to help liberate these people into their new place where God wants them, and they reject the plan, and now Moses has got to be a leader in the desert with wandering people for 40 more years. That's not the story he wanted. And then you know how he he disobeyed God, and God at one point said, you're, now Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land either. Well, 40 years go by, now Moses is an old man, he's 120. And they're back at the border of the promised land. They're up in the mountains east of uh, Jericho, and they're looking over, preparing to cross the Jordan River. Moses is going to die, there's a new leader, Joshua, that's going to come on the scene. And God says to Moses, Go up into the mountain, you're going to look out over the promised land, and you're going to die. You get to see it, but you don't get to go into it. And Moses, about 120, looks out over that promised land. He, through that time in the wilderness, wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why did he write those books? Because he was a teacher. He was telling the, the first and the second generation of Hebrew slaves who they are, where they came from, who God is, what He's doing, and frankly, wove the gospel into all five books of the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy was a, recur a recounting of those same laws and those same uh, admonitions to the new generation going into the promised land. Now, I don't know when Moses wrote Psalm 90. I just know this. It's a panoramic view of life. It's, I feel, and this is just conjecture, I feel like this was written at the end of his life. I think you'll feel that too as you go through it. He has a sense of this sweeping satellite image view of life itself. I, I, I suspect that maybe this was his last words. Maybe this was the last thing he wrote because it's kind of a sweeping, uh, it's a short but sweeping view of life and, and really everything we need to know about the story of God is woven into this short psalm. And I'm going to break it into three parts. But I want you to remember it's flowing from a heart who has lived out a story that he never would have written for himself. And he never would have imagined that this was the life that God ordained for him. And then I want to bring it forward to today, because here's the thing. Just like Moses was born into ancient Egypt, and you and I were born into 21st century America, there came a moment about two months into the pandemic where I'm thinking, you know what? I I, all, all, the first couple months, I just want normal to come back. And I hate that word normal, you know, like new normal, old normal. I've never been normal. <laughs> um, and it's like studying this psalm, God said to me, when are you just going to accept my story and my assignment for you? Like, you think the pandemic's a surprise to me? You think the fact that you're alive in 2021, 2020, you think that you're here for this moment, you think it's just random and that you can control these events? No, I formed you, I knew you, I shaped you, I placed you on this timeline, in this event stream, just like I placed Moses in his. 
And just like I placed Peter and Paul in theirs, just like I placed every God follower in their time for their place, for their moment, for such a time as this, so I placed you at this place in the story. And so God's Spirit to me was like, let it go and jump into the story. Get in on what I'm doing. And that's what Moses is going to teach us. I want you to see, first of all, the only story worth living, and it's in verses 1 and 2. Look at what Moses says, Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place. Now, if you're taking notes, it's the word home. God, You are my home. You are our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever Thou hadst formed the earth or, and the world, from, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Now, I'm going to—I got to tell you, everybody who ever read this psalm loves verses 1 and 2. What's not to love? God, You're my home. Moses understood as a man who never really had a home. Think about it. Moses never really had a permanent home. He was always in transit. He was always migrating and moving. Even as a kid or a teenager, he didn't feel at home because he's a Hebrew in in an Egyptian palace. And then out on the desert, he knows he's not home. And then as a leader, an unlikely leader, an insufficient leader, he knows he's not home. This doesn't feel right. The wilderness doesn't feel right. He never gets to go to the promised land. And so Moses came to a place in life where he realized, wait a minute. This, this physical, material existence is not my true home anyway. God is my home. And this word is not just, um, it, it's not just I'm at home with you, God. This word is, it's, it's familial, it is warm, it is intimate, it is personal, okay? It's not just brick and mortar, I have a place to sleep. It's no, I'm safe here. I belong here. Uh, I, this home is where you go and you, you, you are most relaxed. You are most yourself. Uh, you are putting all pretense is gone and you just crash and, and the real you emerges. Home is where you tend to feel the most secure and uh, the most at, at rest. It's where you rest. It's where you restore. And Moses is saying, God, I have discovered you are not just the creator of all the earth and all the things you've formed. You are not just a timeless sovereign deity, everlasting to everlasting. God, you are not just this sweeping majesty. You are personal, intimate father and caregiver. You're, you're mine and I am yours. And, and Moses is, has has viewed, at least at this writing, he has, he has finally seen himself as the created, cherished child of God placed into a sweeping story, everlasting to everlasting. And no matter what happens in his life, he has a home. He has a home. And his home is God. Okay, now, that's the story. That's the only story worth living, that God is better and bigger and more beautiful and wonderful than we ever thought, but He's also more personal and more up close and more intimate and more accessible. So yeah, He's Creator, and yeah, everlasting to everlasting, but He's also home. I can be at home with Him. I can be at rest with Him. I can know Him, and He can know me. And even though He knows me, He can still love me in spite of who I know I am, in spite of who He knows I am. This can be this intimate home relationship. Now, that's the story. That's the story our hearts most long for. That's why we work so hard to secure ourselves and to build some durability in life. That's why we are so afraid of circumstances that shake us. Because we think we can write a story that secures us. We think we can find a love in this life that, that will fill our heart. But really, the only place we can find that is in God and in the story He's writing. But in the next section of Scripture, verses 3 through verse 11, I'm just going to warn you, for the next five or ten minutes, the psalm goes dark. It gets really dark. At least it feels. Let me just back up. It's not really dark. It feels dark. Okay? Moses just lit, in verses 1 and 2, he shot us into a rocket into the atmosphere and he gave us a satellite view of life. Everlasting to everlasting, God, I need a home. Okay? I need a powerful Savior 
who is mine. But now he's going to bring us back down to planet Earth, and he's going to help us to reckon with some difficult realities. But here's the, here's the blessing, here's the bright side of these dark words, okay? And that is that they're true, <laughs> okay? And it's important that we not just be people that want feel-good words, just happy talk that isn't true. It's important that we be people that get in touch with truth, even if it's painful or difficult truth, okay? Ten years ago this summer, I, I'll back up, 11 years ago this summer, I was starting to have symptoms that concerned me. I had some golf ball-sized lymph nodes under my arm and on my neck, and I began to feel tired and itchy and just some random things that were abnormal. I thought I was having an allergy or a problem, but they didn't go away. And I went in September to a doctor, and they sent me to another doctor, and I went to that doctor, and they sent me to another doctor, and, and I did pet, uh, CAT scan and, and, and blood and work and all this stuff. And I got a phone call one night and, and called into a doctor's office and sat down. The doctor says, you have cancer. I'm like, come again? I'm thinking I'm allergic to my wife's chicken recipe, and he said, no, you've got cancer. I'm thinking it's going to be easy, like, to tell Dana to switch the detergent we're using, and he says, you've got cancer. And six weeks later, we didn't know what kind of cancer. Six weeks later, it's growing in five areas in my chest. Um, we found out a couple months in, it was a cancer called Hodgkin's lymphoma, which at that point was a great relief, because if you're going to get cancer, that's probably the one you would choose. Um, people die from it. For a couple months, I didn't know what kind of cancer I had. I didn't know where this was going. I was planning to die. But that, that news sent me into about a year of chemo and radiation and, and, uh, and radical weakening of, of my own life. But um, God brought, brought me out of it. It was a story I could never have predicted. But here's the deal. If cancer is growing in me, I don't want to know it. But the problem is, if I don't know it, I can't deal with it. And so even though it's hard truth, it's true truth. <laughs> and I'd rather know the truth. I, I, I'm the kind of person, uh, I avoided the doctor, and Dana's like, you're going to the doctor. She's like, I'm keeping you alive as long as I can. I'm like, good, I'm glad you like me. Okay. Um, but I, yeah, I, I kind of would rather not know, but once I got into that, to that stream of information, I'm like, yeah, I've got to know. And the doctor came to me when they diagnosed what kind of cancer, he says, well, we have found out that it is indeed cancer, it's Hodgkin's lymphoma, but here's the good news. We can cure this kind of cancer. In fact, 95 out of 100 people that have this, we can cure it. He said, so you've got really good statistics. If you'll listen to me, if you'll do what I'm saying and what I tell you to do, we think we can give you a lot longer life. And the good news is I lived, as you can tell, okay, for at least 10 years. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I've been thankful God's given me an extra 10 years. But all that to say this, I needed to reckon with the bad news so I could find out the good news. And this is what Moses knows. This is an ancient trip through the gospel, okay? And you know how the gospel starts. The gospel starts, you've fallen. God is holy and you're not. God is perfect and you're not. So what Moses is going to tell us in verses 3 through 11, and I'm going to summarize it in a sentence, then we're going to read it, okay, is that life is harder, shorter, and more desperate than we know. It's shorter than we know. It doesn't last as long as we think it's going to. It's harder than we expect it to be. It's, it's got sorrow woven into it. Even the best life has hard work, uh, and, and, it, and it's filled with sorrow, and it's more desperate than we know because we're the object of God's judgment. We're the object of, we are, we, have, we are offensive to God. Let's see how he worded it from his ancient Hebrew experience. Remember, people that have rebelled against God. He says, verse 3, Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. Now this is interesting. God, you have, aim, you have aimed the entire human race towards destruction because of sin. The whole human race is heading towards destruction. But God, you've made a way to return. You see the gospel start to show up here. Remember, ancient Hebrew, okay, simple concepts. 
God, we're all headed to destruction, but you've given us, or you're planning to give us, you promise us a way to return. Verse 4, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. What is he talking about? I think he's talking, he's talking about a generational passing away, mankind. I believe Moses has now witnessed the last of the last generation die, and the next generation come upon the earth. And he's saying from his vantage point, and I never thought about this when I was in my 20s or 30s, but truly, have you ever thought about every 70 to 90 or 100 years? There's not a single person living on the planet that was living 100 years ago. Like the entire population of the planet is swept away like a flood, and there's a new population that's now alive. That's what he's grasping here. You carry them away like a flood. They're as a sleep. What's he saying? Life is like a watch in the night. It's like, it's like one night's sleep. It's asleep in the morning. They are like grass which groweth up. All these metaphors are about the brevity of life. You grow up, you pass away. So, so I've, I've been able to reconnect with longtime old friends, you know, uh, just a few that are in the room that I didn't even expect to see you coming to California. And I'm like, it's kind of like, we got old. What happened to us? Like I went to high school with Lee Godby. And he, I'm like, Lee, we got old. What happened? It's just that fast. You can't imagine how, how quickly the story goes. That's what Moses is wrestling with, okay? Um, look at verse 6. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up like grass. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. Verse 7 turns a little darker, a little more despairing. We are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Now, I wish I had a little more time to unfold this. Don't, don't ever think that God's wrath is an unjust thing. God's wrath is a reflection of his love. It's a component of his justice. Let me say it another way. You don't want a loving, a loving God that, is, that doesn't have wrath is not a loving God. Because that means, if he doesn't have wrath, if he's not just, then that means he isn't good. Okay? If somebody was assaulting someone that you love and you did nothing, we, we wouldn't say that's love, we would say that's passivity. That's not good. So sin has assaulted God's creation. Satan has assaulted God's creation, and God promises you and me He will be just. He will judge. He will reckon with that sin. He will eradicate it. He will destroy death. He is a good, just judge, and His wrath is not emotion like human anger. His wrath is a quality of justice. It is always right. It is always perfect. And His wrath will be poured out on every bad thing. We all want bad stuff to experience justice and wrath. We just don't want to be the objects of that wrath ourselves. Like we want the terrorist to feel the wrath of America. We don't want to, but we don't want us as sinners to feel the wrath of God. And so everybody believes in justice. We just don't want to be the objects of justice. You see, so the wrath of God is a mixed bag for us. We, we have an emotionally complex relationship with it because on one hand, we want God to judge every sin and wicked thing in the world. Lord, have mercy. Yeah, rescue people in Afghanistan. God, spare the, the people all over the world that are in oppression. Okay, but then when the narrative becomes about my faults and my failures, I'm like, oh, but God, uh, don't have wrath on that. Like, can you wink? Can you let that slip? See, God is a God of wrath, but it's good wrath. It's perfect wrath. It's just wrath. It's a, it's a product of His love. If He's not wrathful, then He's not good and He's not loving, because it means He would just let sin and wickedness go forever. And then what hope do any of us have? If God is not wrathful, what hope do any of us have? And if God is wrathful, then what hope do I have? You see the problem? I want you to notice the conflict that Moses is already developing in the psalm. How can he say in verse 1, God, you're my home, 
And then how can he say in verse seven, you're consuming us with your wrath? Do you see the conflict? The question, the natural question of a thinking reader or a singer or a young child learning this psalm as a child, Jewish child, would have been, how can I move from God's wrath to being at home with God? I can't be both. I, I can't be the object of wrath. He's going to destroy me and judge me, and at the same time, be at rest and at home with Him. So how does this mix? Is this, this is like oil and water. It doesn't go. It's already theologically confusing. But Moses is sharing the gospel through his ancient context. He's saying, we all come into this world as sinners, the object of God's wrath. And in particular, he's talking about their rebellion against God and wandering the wilderness for these 40 years. Look at verse 8, thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. You know everything about us, God. You know every secret about us. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength, if I'm healthy, they be fourscore, maybe eighty. Yet is there, even in the best life, he says, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. It's still hard work and sorrow, no matter how good it is. You know what Moses is saying? Whether you grow up in Afghanistan or Orange County, life is hard and sorrowful. One way or another, it's going to be difficult. And everybody experiences that burden. Verse 11, for who knoweth the power of thine anger? God, your, your anger is massive. It, it, it's greater, it, it's as great as the sin of, of all time. Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So at, by the end of verse 11, you're literally at this, oh no place. The psalm starts so high and so, like, celebrative. God, you're home for every generation. You're my creator, and I can always run back to you, and you're writing a story from everlasting to everlasting. I'm so glad I'm a part of that story. And then verse 3, it just crash lands, and it just drops you on your head. Wait a minute. Life is short. Life is hard. I'm sinful. God is just. I've got to reckon with God's wrath. Oh no, it leaves me, by verse 11, it leaves me hanging by a thread. What in the world is going to happen to me? So, it's harder than we imagined. The story that God is writing, it's harder than we imagined. It's shorter, harder, and more desperate than we know. But then verse 12, what's the first word of verse 12? Can you shout it out to me? So, now here's what we can know about this. Because God wants to be my home, because He's the Creator, God from everlasting to everlasting, because He wants to be home for every generation, and because life is short and hard and under God's judgment, what's the response? So, so because of all these true things, it's kind of like, okay, since I have cancer, and since it's growing in five places, and since it's treatable, so here's the, here's the regimen, here's the prescription, here's the healing, here's the hope. Now that you know what is true, let's find out how the story that's harder than we imagined is also better than we dreamed. So he says, so teach us. Now I wish I could just stop right there for a long time, so teach us. God, teach me. You know what I love about knowing Jesus? I don't have to worry too much about tomorrow or next week or next month. I know that he's going to teach me at every step of the journey. I know that I'm looking at Josue Aguirre, and you're going to have a child. How long before she's due? Six weeks. You're going to be a dad. You are a dad technically, but you're going you're, you're to be like, oh, no. And right now, if you're not terrified, you're just not thinking, okay? You know, you've been Josue. In my, in my memory, you're the ball player, you know. In her memory, you're just, you're, you're a husband. Um, you are, you're the Aguirre's son, you know, your mom and dad's kid. But in five weeks, somebody on this planet is going to call you dad. I mean, not verbally, but like, and you, I mean, Josue, like, you don't know how to be a dad. 
I'm done being a dad, and I barely know how to be a dad. Like, but you know what? If Josue will say, God, teach me. The Jesus that is his home will, he, will be his instructor all the way through. So, so Moses says, God, since this is the life we're living and the story you're writing, teach us to number our days. What does that mean? In spite of the dark, short brevity of life, in spite of the sin of the world, there is value to every single day you live. Every day is a gift from God. Every day has a purpose and a priority to it. Every day has a significance in God's story and in His call on your life. So God, help me prioritize this day. Help me value and live out this day so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. God, teach me to walk through this life with your wisdom. And that's what we're doing right now. We're unfolding Scripture. And we're asking God to teach us His wisdom so we can go out there tomorrow and live a life in this broken planet, this temporary journey, live it the way God says it works best. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Verse 13, in a nutshell, is a cry for compassion. It's a cry for pity. It's a cry for mercy. God, I know we're guilty. I, I know you're my home. I know we're guilty. I know there's a conflict here. God, could you turn towards us and have compassion and pity? Could you not just release us to destruction? Could you intervene in some way? And then verse 14, I think, is the pinnacle of the verse, of the chapter. Oh, satisfy us early with thy, what's the word? Mercy. What's he saying? Satisfy us early with thy mercy. How does an object of God's wrath become the object of his delight and love? How does my judge become my home? Me guilty in sin. How does the one who condemns me guilty in sin erase my guilt? absolve my sin, and adopt me into his family, and give me a seat at his table, and a room in his house? How does that judicial transition happen? And the answer is mercy. Mercy. And we have a 21st century view of that mercy that Moses only had a blurry, prophetic, forward-looking idea of. He knew the principles. He knew guilt and sin, uh, destitute apart from mercy. He knew the only way he could relate to God. Moses is not saying, God, how do I fix this? What do I have to do to obtain salvation and goodness? How do I be good enough to achieve your blessings? That would be the rational question. What do I have to do? to deal with my guilt, to earn forgiveness, and to earn home with God. But he doesn't say that. He says, could you, set, could you show mercy? You see, the only hope for salvation is God's mercy through Jesus. We sang about it, the blood. We sang about the work of Christ on the cross. What was he doing? The cross was Jesus satisfying on one hand all of the wrath of God, the just judgment for our sin and the sin of humanity, and on the other hand, pouring out all the infinite love and mercy of God upon anybody that would receive it. It was the judge standing in the place of the guilty and saying, I will bear the, the punishment. I will bear the wrath. I'll absorb the wrath so I can pour out the love and grace. I will bear the condemnation so that you can find your home in me. And Moses says, so God, satisfy me, fill me up all the way. Let me tell you the context or the framing of this. It's not just the moment you were saved. That, that's the starting point of being the recipient of God's mercy, the moment you trust Christ. But it is waking up every day knowing that your very relationship with God is based upon mercy. You are no longer, in Christ, you're no longer the object of His wrath, you're the object of His mercy. You're the object of His love. And every day, His love, it's like, a, it's like, it's like living under a Niagara Falls of grace and love and mercy. Every day, 
You have all that you could ever consume and use and, and, and swim in, and you have plenty to give others because of God's infinite mercy. Satisfy us early with thy mercy. So already this dark psalm is getting amazingly hopeful. It's getting, it's, it's elating. It's, it's just exploding now with positivity. Let's look at the next verse, and we're almost done. Make us glad. According to the days wherein thou afflicted us, God, swing the pendulum back. Swing the pendulum of negative, the burdens of life, the afflictions of life back into the positive and let joy, let gladness overflow. Verse 16, here it is, let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. So Moses says, God, I want to prioritize every day. I want to live in wisdom. I want to rejoice in your full mercy. I want to be satisfied every day in your mercy. I want to relate to you on the basis of your mercy every day of my life, and I want your work. Now look at verse 16, let thy work appear unto thy servants. Here's the thing, God's always at work. He's at work on planet earth in, in unthinkable ways, unimaginable ways. This is the story he's writing. He is working. And what Moses is saying is, God, let us see just a glimpse of your work. He's at work in this church. It's amazing for me to come in and meet your staff and, and see what God is doing. You're a part of something really special here. And he's praying, God, I don't, I, don't, I don't have to have a certain story or a certain role or a certain identity. I just want to see you at work. And I love the next phrase. I want my children, we want our children to see your glory. Here's a man who wants to pass on his faith, not just his mandates, not just his legal uh, his legislated lifestyle, not just his, his to-do list. He wants the next generation to see the glory of God. He wants the next generation to see the attractional, wonderful, loving beauty of God. He wants his children to say, I choose God for who he is, not just for what he says I have to do. You know, one of the principles we lift off here is we don't mandate our kids to follow Jesus. We have to show them Jesus. <laughs> They have to see him. He says, we want our children to see your glory so that they'll choose you. And look at verse 17, he ends the psalm here. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. God, not just your, your countenance uh, shining on us and, and delighting in us and living every day knowing that, but God, we want to reflect that beauty. We want to go out this week in our place on God's timeline and God's story, and we want to be images. We want to be image bearers of the grace and the mercy of God to people around us, including our own family. I want to reflect God's love and grace to my wife, husband, son, daughter, family, coworkers, neighbors. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And then he ends the psalm this way, and establish thou the work of our hands. What an awesome thought that in this short life, in this broken world, in spite of my guilt, God can redeem me in mercy, bring me into His purpose, His work, and actually give me a work in His work that I can say, God, take the work of my hands and strengthen it. And He repeats the phrase twice, establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. What is he saying about the work of our hands? He's saying, God, make it durable, make it fruitful, establish it, make it successful. Take the work you are doing and the work you've given us to do as a part of your work and let it flourish. So, God, you're home. Generation to generation, everlasting to everlasting. But we have a problem. We're born into guilt. We have a short life. It's hard. It's a broken planet. It's a fallen creation. And if we're not, if there's not radical intervention, we're under your judgment. Oh, but God, show mercy. Have pity. Send a Savior, which He did. Take the wrath, which He did. Conquer death, which He did. And Lord, satisfy us with your mercy. Bring us back to you. And Lord, don't just bring us back to you, but, but let, let, let us sense and let us be glad in this life every day 
that we can wake up as the objects of your mercy. Let us live out that gladness. And God, show your work to us. Show us where you're at work. And then, God, show our kids through us your glory and your beauty. And Lord, then take us, and, and as we go to work for you, strengthen the work of our hands. And so I would tell you this, in summary, there is a story that God is writing. It's not the story you want to write. I would have never written cancer or COVID or Connecticut. Wow, that's alliterated. Cancer, COVID, Connecticut. I would never written any of this into my story. No one is more surprised than I am that I'm pastoring a church in Connecticut, that I'm a senior pastor at all, that I'm alive right now at all. This isn't the story I would have written. It's, I never would have imagined this story. And it is harder, much harder than I ever imagined. Marriage has been harder. Health has been harder. Pastoring has been way harder than I thought it was. I mean, life in general, parenting, it's all hard. But, it, but, but I got to tell you, it's also been better than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> it sounds like a dichotomy. Harder than I imagined, but better than I dreamed. But that's true. Life with God, life in the story that God is writing is better than I ever dreamed. So two applications. If you've never bowed before the cross of Jesus and been born into new life with Him, if you've never received His mercy purchased on the cross for your life, that's the starting place. That's the moment that Jesus becomes home to you, okay? And if you have, if you're a believer, if you're anything like me, you keep trying to take the pen out of God's hands and correct the script that He's writing. And my challenge to you today is do like Moses, just give the pen back to God. Stop complaining about your story. Okay, you are where you are. I read a John Piper quote months ago, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It was something like this. Occasionally, weep bitterly over the life that you thought would be. Occasionally, grieve. Feel it. Weep, get it out, sorrow, the life that you thought you would have, the pain that life has brought you, the loss that life has brought you, the suffering, whatever, the parts of your story that have bruised and scarred and that you feel are just, they're just not what, what was supposed to happen. Occasionally, weep, but then dry your eyes, stand up look up, and live the life that God has given to you. Amen. Live the story that He is writing, because it's a merciful story. It's a grace story. It's a purposeful story. And you're in it right now. So live it. Be glad in it. Love it. So give the pen back to God today. Let him write the story. Be the leaf, let him be the river. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.